Have Maria Purissima, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Uh, just a brief note, St. Paul in the Epistle today talks about being taken up to the third heaven. And just for clarity, sometimes people don't really understand how they talked about things in the old days. The first heaven is like our atmosphere. The second heaven is what we would call outer space. And the third heaven is what we would call heaven. So when you hear about that in the scriptures, that's, that's what he's talking about. There is is what we would call heaven. Okay. As a punishment uh, for their sins of rebellion and idolatry, the people of God spent seven years as captives in the pagan kingdom of Babylon. And as we saw last week, during the whole season from September Jerusalem until Easter, the liturgy symbolizes the Babylonian captivity. It's reminding us of the world of sin in which we find ourselves struggling in until we're released from our bondage and allowed to enter into the heavenly Jerusalem which is symbolized in the liturgy from Easter to Pentecost. In Psalm 136, the people of God mourn in exile, and we quote, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows we hung up our instruments. They that led us into captivity required of us songs. And they that carried us away said, Sing to us of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the song of the Lord in a strange land? Close quote. So the people of God are weeping and mourning down in Babylon and are unable to sing the songs of the Lord during this exile, which is symbolized in the liturgy during this season by the suppression of the Gloria and the Hallelujah. And the mourning is also symbolized by the violet vestments. Last week, we also spent some time considering some of the damage we all suffer from the original sin. One of the weak points at which this Babylonian culture in which we find ourselves attacks us. Let's review. Man's a creature made in the image and likeness of God with a body and an immortal soul, a spiritual soul, which is meant for union with God. He's created in a state of original justice. He was showered with heavenly gifts. But when our, the first man, our father Adam, committed the original sin, he threw away the state of original justice. He threw away supernatural grace. He threw away the gifts of integrity, impassibility, and immortality. He threw away friendship with God and chose bondage to Satan. Man became subject to hard work, suffering, sickness, and death. Man landed in a state of fallen nature in which doing good is difficult, the intellect is darkened, the will is weak, and man suffers from his passions rising up in rebellion against right reason, and that rebellion is known as concupiscence. And all that means, right now, for all of us, instead of being led by reason, we can easily be led by our passions and our appetites. But when we're being led by our passions or emotions instead of our reason, then we're actually being unreasonable. And in fact, to the very degree that we're being led by our passions, to that very degree, we're no longer acting like men, we're actually acting like beasts, with one major difference is that beasts can't act below their nature. So in other words, we saw that concupiscence inclines us strongly towards sin. So that's reality. Before the fall, because of the gift of integrity, human nature was perfectly ordered so man loved God above all things and certainly more than himself. But after the fall, sanctifying grace and the gift of integrity are lost, and human nature is disordered. 
The passions are disordered, the intellect's been darkened, wills have been weakened, and man has trouble struggling to do the good. Man now naturally tends towards selfishness, to seek his own personal desires without thinking about the common good and without thinking about God. And this cannot be fixed without grace. So we're here to get to heaven, but we have a problem, and it's a serious problem. We're all afflicted with concupiscence. We're all afflicted with this terrible inclination towards sin. And then with all that as background, we considered one very common way that our Babylonian culture attacks us. We noted that in spite of the fact that we all suffer from concupiscence, the serious problem with our sense appetites, which are in rebellion against right reason, advertisers typically attack us at this weak point by appealing to our concupiscence, by appealing to our passions and emotions. And we noted that since most of our advertising is set up specifically to, to appeal to a power which inclines us towards sin, that means it's actually set up to tempt us. We saw that for the first time in history, in all of human history, temptations are being scientifically designed to stir up the passions. And it works. It really works. The advertisers today are spending upwards of $5 million for a 30-second Super Bowl commercial. Obviously, they're pretty confident that that's a good investment. I didn't say a moral investment. For the first time in all of history, temptations are being scientifically designed to appeal to the sensual desires. And this in spite of the fact that it's a unanimous testimony of history and human experience that it's a constant battle for man to conquer his passions and to bring them under the rule of right reason. To live a life of virtue, the passions simply have to be brought into submission. And that's impossible if they're continually being decided. It's just totally impossible. To live a virtuous life, the passions have to be brought into submission. You can't do that if they're constantly being excited. So much for the review. Last week, we started this little discussion with an example of children's cereal. Now, that's something sweet, something that's meant to appeal to our taste buds, to our desire to eat. Now, obviously, there's an even greater desire. There's only one appetite that's strong in the desire for food and that God has placed in us in order to preserve the human race, desire to procreate. St. Thomas points out that with regard to this desire, the sense appetites are the most strongly moved because of the vehemence of the pleasure. And you don't need me to tell you the mass media of this toxic Babylonian culture is absolutely drenched with sensual images meant to stimulate, promote that desire. Sensual imagery that tempts and beckons men, the deadly sin of lust, is everywhere. You can't buy a bottle of milk in the grocery store without having to run a gauntlet. It's everywhere. That's not accidental either. Not only is it not accidental, that kind of imagery has consequences, lots of serious social consequences, and let's see why. Suppose some man goes home to see his wife and unexpectedly finds someone else in there. Right then and there, he totally flips out and kills the intruder. It's a crime of passion. Everybody knows that in a crime of passion, a man's passions have literally overridden his reason, so he's actually not in his right mind completely when he commits the crime. We can all see the difference between a killing done in the heat of passion and one done in cold blood. In a cold-blooded crime, the murderer coolly 
calmly, carefully, dispassionately plans the execution of his victim. So these two examples make the point that when we look at the effect that the passions have on the actions of fallen men like us, not just crimes, but our actions, we have two possible extremes. At one end, a man can be led, you know, led away by his passions till he's all, all the way out of his mind. Well, at the other, he's acting coolly and calmly like you would when solving a math problem. So he's cool as a cucumber, a raging maniac. Those are kind of the two extremes, right? Once we see that, it's easy to understand the effect that sins against purity, sins of lust, have on a man. Because of the violent effect of the passions excited by lust, the mental state of a man under influence of lust is hovering somewhere towards the one extreme of the passions, you know, where if it's all the way pegged, it'd be out of his mind due to passion extreme. But it's over there. It's on that side of the meter. That's the effect that inflaming those passions have on a man. St. Thomas says, quote, lust increases the force of concupiscence and weakens the strength of the mind. The reason and the will are most grievously disordered by lust. Close quote. Lust increases the force of concupiscence, it inflames the passions, and it weakens the strength of the mind. The reason and the will are most grievously disordered by lust. Now with all that as background, that the mental state of a man under the influence of lust is grievously disordered and is somewhere over on the side of the passion extreme, you know, all the way where we could go all the way to the out of the mind. Given that, let's take a few minutes to consider the short-term and long-term effects of sins against purity. Short-term effects. According to St. Thomas, sins of lust give rise to a series of four problems in the intellect. The first is intellectual blindness. The image and the imagination is messed up because of the violent excitement that lust causes in the passions. So these raging passions uh, color the image, so to speak, which means that the picture of reality that they, in the imagination is fuzzy and blurred and exaggerated in the parts that are attracted. Now, because the image and the imagination is messed up, the intellect, which relies on the imagination to stay in contact with reality, just isn't getting a clear focus. In fact, it can't. All that's available is a distorted, passion-overridden picture, okay? So lust just whacks the thought processes out of kilter. And the more perverted the sins, the more the passions distort the image, and so the more out of whack the mental picture becomes. For example, let's imagine a young couple with a vocation of holy matrimony, and they've been passionately kissing, and etc., 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 from the beginning of the relationship. Which, by the way, Passionate kissing is a privilege reserved completely for the married. All those passions are God's gift to the married and to no one else. And to deliberately stir them up, uh, say by passionate kissing, is a mortal sin for the unmarried. Okay, so this young couple has been getting carried away, and there are serious consequences to that kind of behavior. Because this stirs up violent emotions, in the, or violent excitement, rather, in the passions, the image the young man has of the young lady and vice versa. The image in his imagination is distorted by those excited feelings. These raging passions distort the image so that the image of the person is basically clouded over with a steamy mist of passion. Now because the image and imagination is so clouded over, his intellect, which relies on his imagination to stay in contact with reality, just can't get a clear picture. 
It can't. It isn't getting one because it can't. All that's available is a distorted, passion-overridden picture, okay? So this passionate behavior just whacks the thought processes out the kilter. The more repeated or the more perverted the passionate behavior, the more the resultant passions fog up that image. And so the more steamy and out of focus the mental picture becomes, okay? St. Thomas calls this problem intellectual blindness. Remember, the clearer the image we have of some object, like the person we're considering marrying, the clearer the understanding we can come to. The more confused or messed up the image we get of the person, the more hazy our understanding will be. Now think about what that means for this young couple. This means that neither of the two parties involved can actually get a clear picture of the other person. Neither of them can get a clear picture of the other person. Now notice what happens when he looks at her or thinks about her or she thinks about him or looks at him. Instead of being able to get a calm, relatively clear, balanced assessment of the person, the flames of passion have distorted the image they have of each other. The more excited they allow themselves to get, the more disturbed that image is, and so the more profound the blindness. By steaming up their minds with illegitimate pleasures, it actually really, really gummed up their ability to judge whether or not this is the right person to marriage. Is this the right person for me to marry? And the more repeated and the more perverted the passionate behavior, the more the passions distort that image of the other, and so the more gummed up their judgment becomes. And this is a judgment which directly impacts their happiness in this life and the next. Once we see this and understand this, it's easy to see why the honeymoon is supposed to come after the marriage, and also why so many marriage problems start cropping up as the flames of passion naturally start cooling over the years. They really didn't know that person like that. They knew them biblically before they knew them as another person. And that's the wrong order. We continue. This intellectual blindness directly affects the decision-making process. Because of this blindness, the whole process of choosing the right means to get something done gets knocked out of kilter. Now, without going through all the details, in a nutshell, here's what happens. When someone who's committed a sin of lust is trying to make a practical judgment concerning the object of his passion, in other words, when he's trying to decide how to do something, when he's trying to decide what's the best way to get this done, he's got some real problems. His unruly passions have distorted the lustful man's imagination, which, as we've seen, caused mental blindness. And even though intellectually he may have a clear understanding of how a problem ought to be solved, he can't clearly see how to solve this particular problem. He may understand the principles, but he can't completely put them into practice. Now, why is that? We'll look at a concrete sort of this problem in just a minute, but first we'll go through the steps of the decision-making process following St. Thomas very closely. In the process of making a practical judgment, a judgment of how to do something, the first step is to consider the different options. What are different ways I could get this done? In the case of the lustful man, because of his mental blindness, he's not in complete contact with reality. Since he's not in complete contact with reality, since he has his warped, passion-distorted picture to work with, he doesn't have the ability to carefully judge his circumstances. So he makes rash decisions. He seizes on a possible solution without carefully considering all the options. Then that's compounded by thoughtlessness. 
That's an inability to thoughtfully consider and compare to determine whether or not this particular solution he selected is a best method. Why? Because his mental blindness and rashness prevent him from carefully weighing the decision to make sure this really is the best solution. And then to top it off, he's troubled by inconstancy. He can't stick to his decision. He can't decisively command something to be done, even when he knows it's the right thing to do, since he's such a slave to his passions. St. Thomas points out that lust causes a man to be carried away with his passions, and this causes him to be hindered from doing what his reason ordered to be done. Okay, now let's, see a con let's consider a concrete uh, example to see how this works. Suppose a man suffering from mental blindness caused by lust realizes he just has to break up with his partner in sin. So far, so good, but then he makes a rash decision. He sees on a possible solution without carefully considering all the options he decides, I'll just go over to her place tonight and tell her it's over. Now, how dumb is that? I mean, you could patent it, that's so stupid. He doesn't even really consider any other options. That's his rashness. He's made a rash decision. He sees on a possible solution without carefully considering all the other options. Then his mental blindness and rashness prevented from really taking stock of the situation and said, wow, if I really want to break up with her, maybe this isn't really the best way to do it. Well, duh. But that's the problem, thoughtlessness. He just thoughtlessly goes along with the first thing that came to his mind. He's made the decision. He drives other bound and determined to break up with her. He walks in, he tells her, it's over, baby. And as soon as he tells her that, she bursts into tears. And then what happens? There she is, bawling her eyes out. So he feels terrible, and he's a slave to his passions. So his feelings take charge. At that point, his inability to stick to his decision kicks in. His resolution goes flying out the window. He rushes over to comfort her, and a story. He's worse off than when he started. And that happens all the time. That happens all the time. Inconstancy means a young man a young woman can't stick to decisions concerning the object of passion of their partner. He can't decisively command something to be done, even when he knows darn good and well it's the right thing to do. As we've just seen, he may very well decide that he just has to break up with the girl. They may even try to break up. But because he's now enslaved to his passions, he may very well be unable to stick to his resolution. In fact, he may very well lead her down the aisle in spite of those misgivings, and that happens all the time. And obviously, this will also directly impact your happiness in this life and the next. Okay, quick review. There are four levels of darkness inflicted on the intellect by sins of lust. Mental blindness, because the imagination is carried away by the passions. Rashness and judgment, because a man blinded by lust can't see clearly exactly what is appropriate in this situation. Thoughtlessness, because this man's blindness and rashness keep him from carefully considering and choosing the best of his options, and inconstancy, because this man is so carried away by his passions, he's actually hindered from doing what his reason tells him ought to be done. So much for the damage to the reason caused by sins of lust. What about damage done to the will? There are also a series of problems here. In the first place, because of the disordered state of a lustful man, the basic setting for his will is self-love. Why? Because he has this disordered desire for sinful pleasure, and so he longs to please himself. And the natural result of the state of self-love is hatred of God. A lustful man is unwilling to separate himself from his sin. 
He's in love with his pleasure in himself, and so naturally he hates God. Why? Because God absolutely forbids the pleasure this man so passionately desires. Look at how some of these poor people will howl and wail at the church or invent a new, non, a new non-judgmental God that affirms them in their sins. Now, besides self-love and the company hatred of God, it's also to see why the will of the lustful man is set towards the love of this world. Why? Because he longs to gratify his passions. He's in love with worldly pleasures. And the natural result of loving this world is despair in a future life. Why? Because a man in love with carnal pleasures realizes at some level that spiritual growth requires denying himself and separating himself from the sins of lust. Now, we don't want to confuse this uh, despair with a feeling of despair. This problem is in the will, which basically is taking a position of rest or complacency or surrender with respect to the situation. That's why it's not uncommon to hear people enslaved by sins of lust utter horrifying remarks like, well, I'll just go to hell. Uh, that's where all my friends are going to be. God forbid his worldly friends may indeed end up down there, but there isn't any comfort or companionship in hell. No one has any friends in hell. Nobody. A perfect example of love this world and despair of the future life were given a few years in an interview with a well-known degenerate who said, quote, I do not believe in a biblical God. I would believe in a God who created this world who would indeed give us an afterlife. An afterlife would be a really good deal. Yeah, I would vote in favor of that. But in the meantime, I urge one and all to live this life as if there is no reward in the afterlife. Close quote. Well, in that one line, he really captures the essence of the love of this world and despair of the next. Live this life as if there is no reward in the, laugh, in the afterlife. Well, gee, that's just really profound. He died this last September, so he knows the truth now. We're speaking, of course, about Hugh Hefner, who terrifyingly enough seems to have given no sign whatsoever of repentance. So the problems in the will of lustful man are self-love, hatred of God, love of this world, and despair of the future life. Now that we've taken a quick look at the short-term problems that sins against purity cause the individual sinner, let's take a quick look at the long-term problems they cause. The long-term effect, St. Thomas, quote, there is no sin in which the devil takes so much delight as in purity, because the flesh is strongly inclined to that vice, and he that falls into it can be rescued from it only with difficulty, close quote. Because the flesh is strongly inclined to that vice, he that falls into it can be rescued from it only with difficulty. In other words, over the long term, sins against purity place the sinner in bondage. There's a simple rule. The more repeated the sins, the more perverted the sins, the more terrible the bondage. Why? Because the more the sins are repeated, the more perverted they are, the more the passions are inflamed and escape the rule of reason. In fact, the degree they've been repeatedly inflamed and perverted to that degree, it's all the more difficult to get them back under control, which is another way of just saying the more tightly they hold that sinner in bondage. The more repeated, the more perverted, the more enslaved. Once we understand that these sins cause problems like mental blindness, self-love, hatred of God, love of this world, the spirit of future life, and bondage. Once we realize that because of the violent effect of the passions excited by lust, the mental state of a man 
not an influence of love, is hovering somewhere near that out of his mind or the passion extreme. Once we consider all that, then it's really easy to see why people react so violently when they hear the actual honest to God teach you the Holy Catholic Church about holy purity. Their passions are so inflamed, and God's teaching is so threatening the pleasures they really live for, they're at the point where they can actually scarcely help themselves. They can scarcely help themselves, and we need to pray. How desperately we need to pray and fast and sacrifice for them so that they can get the grace they desperately need to deny themselves, to escape this terrible dehumanizing bondage. We need to pray. We need to pray especially because the final, by far the most serious problem resulting from sins against purity. St. Alphonsus explains, quote, Sins against purity are the sins which fill hell with souls. Another vice is the devil fishes with the hook. This he fishes with the net, so that by impurity he gains more for hell than by all other sins. Indeed, I do not hesitate to assert that all those who are damned are damned on account of this one vice of impurity, or at least not without it. Close quote, St. Alphonsus, Bishop and Doctor of the Church. So the final most serious problem resulting from sins against purity is eternal damnation. We need to pray. As Our Lady of Fatima said in August of 1917, pray, pray very much and make sacrifices for sinners. For many souls go to hell for their none to sacrifice themselves. Pray for them. We need to pray. Let's review. We've taken a quick look at the short-term, long-term consequences of sins against purity, which fall upon the man who actually commit these sins. In the short term, we've seen that these sins inflame the passions. There are four levels of darkness inflicted on his intellect. Mental blindness, because imagination is carried away by the passions. Rashness and judgment, because a man afflicted by that blindness can't make a clear assessment of what's appropriate in a particular situation. Thoughtlessness, because this man's blindness and rashness keep him from carefully considering and choosing the best of his options. And inconstancy, because this man is so carried away by his passions, he's actually hindering from doing what his reason tells him ought to be done. We've also seen there are four problems with the will of the lustful man. Self-love, hatred of God, love of this world, and despair of the future life. We've seen that the reason that sinners get so agitated when the church's teaching is brought up is because their passions are so inflamed. God's teaching is so threatening the pleasures they're really living for that they're at the point where they scarcely help themselves. We've seen that we need to pray fast and intercede for them. Over the long term, we've seen that the more these sins are repeated and the more perverted they are, the more the passions become inflamed and escape the rule of reason. And to the very degree that these passions are repeated, inflamed, and perverted, to that very degree they're the more difficult to quiet down and get back under control, which is just another way of saying the more repeated and perverted the sins are, the more tightly that sinner is held in bondage to his lust. We've seen that the final most serious problem resulting from sins against purity it's eternal damnation. So sins of lust, wherever and however they're committed, have very serious personal and societal consequences. They have lots of very serious social consequences. Let's just take a glimpse at some of those. We'll take impure imagery, for example. According to 2015 survey by the Bonner Group, that's a California-based evangelical polling firm, here in the U.S., 
57% of young adults from 18 to 24, and 29% of those 25 and older actually seek out this type of imagery daily, weekly, or monthly. Given that this is a shameful topic, and that those that were polled were specifically questioned about whether they actively sought out this imagery, these percentages may very well be low. Other polls give much higher percentages. Now keep in mind that the more often these images are looked at, the more perverted they are, the more the passions of the viewer become inflamed and escape the rule of reason. And to the very degree that the passions become repeatedly inflamed and perverted to that very degree, they're more difficult to quiet down, get back under control, which as we've seen is another way of seeing the more perverted and repeated the sins, the more tightly that sinner is held in bondage. It doesn't end there. The more inflamed perverted his passions become, the more the mental state that man moves towards the out of his mind due to passion extreme. To that very degree, he's going to have more difficulty in controlling his passions of the flesh, anger, gluttony, and lust. Now stop and ponder the damage, the short-term and long-term damage inflicted on society by those sins. Think about what we've just heard. As of 2015, 50% of young adults from 18 to 24, 29% of, uh, of those 25 and older, actually seek out this type of imagery daily, weekly, or monthly. What are we saying? We're saying that when we have a society which millions, literally millions of people in that society are committing serious sins against purity, that society will be inflected by a profound intellectual and spiritual blindness. Think about that. Think about that. And that's not all. If this behavior continues unopposed because of the very force of millions of sinners increasingly unable to control their passions, because of the very force of millions of sinners living ever closer to that out of their mind because of passion extreme, that society is doomed to descend either into anarchy, which is always followed by tyranny, or the tyranny will be imposed before the anarchy breaks out. Why is that? Because there's only two ways to control men. There's only two ways to control man, from the inside with virtue or from the outside with force. There's only two ways to control man, from the inside with virtue, from the outside with force. And if there's one thing those statistics tell us, it's that we as an American people are not virtuous. We are not virtuous. We are vicious people. The Constitution is only a piece of paper. And given a society like ours, that's just about how much it's worth, too. We are vicious people. And you can't move away out of vice and into virtue. There's only two ways to control men. From the inside of virtue, from the outside with force. Vicious men must be ruled by force. 
in a society dominated by lust. It's a society of vicious men. Tyranny is a direct and necessary consequence of allowing a culture to sink into sexual vice. Tyranny is a necessary and direct consequence of allowing a culture to sink into sexual vice. So here we are in Babylon, surrounded by so many millions in bondage. Millions upon millions, blinded in bondage. Blinded in bondage, and yet they love their chains. They love their chains. Now for those that are going to watch the Super Bowl today, think about what we've learned over the past two weeks. The advertisers are going to spend upwards of $5 million dollars for 30 second slots. Why? For the chance to manipulate you. Think about that. They're spending fortunes to manipulate you, to tempt you. They know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. And once again, ponder what have you learned. Ask yourself, what kind of a country allows these kind of attacks on its own people. Think about the social and political implications of what we've talked about. And we'll pick up there next week.